Before we begin, I just wanted to let you know that I'll be giving a Science of Star Trek talk at Nerd Night Victoria on Monday, March 15th. This is a virtual event, so even if you're not in the vicinity of Victoria, British Columbia, you can tune in from anywhere in the world. Just follow the link in the show notes to find out how. Usually my Science of Star Trek talks don't include the science of Star Trek Discovery, mainly because it's hard to talk about that show without spoiling any major plot points. But season one of Discovery has been out for over three and a half years now, so I think I'm going to be including some mycelial and tardigrade science in my lecture for the very first time. It should be fun, and I hope to see you there. Once again, that's Nerd Night Victoria on Monday, March 15th. Last time on Strange New Worlds, we began an interview with New York Times best-selling author and Star Trek novelist John Jackson Miller. John told us about writing and publishing Star Trek books, and how he developed a very exciting scene where Captain Pike's crew had to science their way out of a methane sea in his Star Trek Discovery novel, The Enterprise War. In part two of this interview, we'll finish The Enterprise War with a discussion of Professor Galagian, the Enterprise's chief engineer and an all-new character that John introduced to the Star Trek universe. Then, we'll talk about the frigid world where Spock encounters the Red Angel. And then, we'll embark on Die Standing, John's Giorgio-centric novel, and talk about the character of Mirror Giorgio, and the fascinatingly unhumanoid alien species that she encounters in her travels. It's an invigorating ride. So, here's the conclusion of my interview with John Jackson Miller. So I wanted to touch upon Professor Galagian, this new character that you um, brought us in this novel. Like you said, he's a theoretical physicist who has designed important aspects of the Enterprise, but who honestly just sucks as an engineer. <laughs> he's just so terrible. And that's the reason why I really loved this character, because one of my pet peeves about Star Trek is how sometimes some of the character's expertise is just too broad. Like Spock is an expert at every single scientific discipline, geology, exobiology, astrophysics, all of them. And like Dr. Crusher can do every single medical procedure herself. But in reality, scientists and doctors and engineers are highly specialized people. So as a planetary scientist myself, I feel like a complete layperson when I read about psychology or nanotechnology. And similarly, I think if you put most theoreticians in front of a lab bench, they would have no idea what to do. And so that's why Galagian sort of spoke to me, even though for most of the novel, he's sort of the character you facepalm at because he's <laughs> messing things up all the time. He is more real as a scientist to me because he has that helplessness to him in, in the face of tasks that he was never trained in. And I was wondering if if that was sort of part of the character development that you brought into this. Um, I wanted him to be extremely enthusiastic about his work. Yeah. I mean, he is he's an evangelist for his work. 
you know, it, there's a party wherever he is. There's a the, the, there's a joke that you know, it's 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 like a Nobel Prize after party wherever he is, or something like that. Whatever the actually it was a Nobel, but it was it was the uh, it was uh, Zephyr Cochran Prize uh, a, a cocktail party wherever he's wherever he is. Um, and so there are all these beats. You know, Robert Petkoff does a very good version of this character in the audiobook where he's talking with Pike, who is Pike is no nonsense. And you know, their whole first sequence is, you know, you know, <laughs> you you ask him a question and he he starts into what is almost certainly going to be his lecture for the layperson, you know, uh, uh, assume a bunny X with operator O. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and uh, they begin referring to him as Dr. O because he's he is that person within the equation, but they also start referring to him as Dr. O as an, oh my God, what has he done wrong? <laughs> um, but what I do is I make his failure, I make his big failing early. Um, we're not waiting for the entire book for him to screw up at the last minute. You know, we have uh, we have him be directly or at least indirectly responsible for the loss of the other crew members uh, for his inability to actually operate a terminal mm-hmm. um, just because he doesn't know how to extend this or do that. He can tell you everything about how to shape shields, how shields are functioning, how they, they relate to, to various things. But once you get to you know, certain non-theoretical aspects of it, you know, he's, he's very much, uh, you know, he's a theory guy. And, yeah. But that's why he's here also. We can't get away from the thought that, at least in the early days, the Enterprise is it's not an exploration ship just in the sense of going to strange new worlds to coin a, a phrase for a podcast. Uh, <laughs> it is, it's a science lab, you know, it's going out there and it's answering science problems. It was natural that this laboratory would attract the attention of an engineer uh, of his caliber. Um, another one of the things is that just in continuity, we knew that Scotty was not the engineer yet. And we knew that we, there was no specific engineer that I was forced to use. There, there had been like six or seven different ones. The book even makes a joke out of it. Uh, and I figured, well, why would that be? It's it's that way because it's the it's the it's the show pony ship. I mean, it is the it's the everybody wants to have been the chief engineer on the Enterprise just once, uh, whether they should be or not. Mm. Uh, and so. You know, uh, you know, look. Even when I was uh, in, you know, in grad school for for political science, back then and there, there was this you know war going on between applied and theoretical, uh, you know, science uh, between the professor that wanted to solve everything with polling data and the professor that said the only way that you could get to know anything about Belgium is to you know meet a Belgian on a bus. Mm. Uh, you know, the 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 difference between those two things. That tension was always going to be there. And I deliberately constructed a situation that would force him to deal with the applied side of things. And that's one of the reasons the story takes so long, because I wanted them to be separated from the others you know, for months. But I also wanted Galadian to have enough time to learn the ropes that it was, you know, you could believe it. This was not something that was going to be solved after one episode. This is going to be something where, you know, he gets to the end of it and we can't believe that at that point he's at a Scotty level or anything like that, or even at an Ensign's level. Uh, but we have to at least know that he's he's come to grips with 
okay, all the theories that I've had, here's how they are put into use. And he does tell us he wanted to learn this. This is why he boarded Enterprise. He was tired of just thinking of all of these things, you know, just in theory. He wanted to be part of the experiment. Well, he got that. (laughs) Definitely. So as we've mentioned, there's another very interesting world in this planetary system. It's the one that Spock eventually finds himself stranded on. Uh, He calls it Scon's world. And this this planet has both water ice and nitrogen ice. And as Spock is taking what he thinks is going to be his dying breaths, he is being that scientist he's always been, you know, cataloging the different kinds of ice and (laughs) trying to watch a cryovolcano explode. Uh, And I just think this is so beautiful and so emblematic of who Spock's character is. You know, if I wanted to die in my line of work, being a planetary scientist, it would probably be to witness something like a cryovolcano exploding. Um, Anyway, this this planet, Scon's World, really reminded me of uh, Pluto or Neptune's moon Triton because it has both water ice and and nitrogen ice on it. So I was wondering, how did you decide on the nature of this planet? Was Pluto or Triton an inspiration? No, the TV show was because uh, we right. see the planet. We, we see it. We see it. We see Spock. Um, the thing is, the scene had not been shot when I uh, wrote the plot. What happened is uh, you know, you, you, you're told what you're going to see. Mm-hmm. But uh, until you actually see it on the screen, you know, I did not. I knew he was I knew he had his tricorder. I knew he was I knew it was an ice planet. I knew that it was extremely cold. I did not know anything further about how they were going to dress it up. And so literally in between you know, the second and third draft or whatever it is, when the actual TV show airs that shows the flashback with him, because it's where his encounter with the Red Angel is. Right. right. Um, when that happened, I said, okay, he, he has to have his uniform back. Uh, and so I had already made it so that the uniforms were part of the kit that were on the the mechs that they all had. They mm-hmm. just let them have their stuff. Uh, he also was allowed to keep his tricorder because, again, I wanted, I, I needed to have him have a tricorder in that scene. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously, the people who, you know, when they were making that scene, they did not know they had to adapt for me. I had to adapt for them. You know, I knew by that point he's breathing. Uh, he might not be breathing easily, but he's breathing. One of the things that is a late addition is when I saw the scene, I saw that there were a number of structures, ice structures around where he was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it looked it looked almost man-made, like you know, sort of an altarish kind of thing. And I said, okay, I need to find that in nature. Uh-huh. Uh, and so uh, I went and I looked at in Arabia, they have these, these little structures that are sort of sort of little... Uh, little pillars that are carved by the wind and by the sand. And I said, okay, well, that's what this is. <laughs> that's, yeah, but made of ice. So, yes, made of ice. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so I have Spock think about that. And then I probably, this is how I would handle something like this. I probably also had him say something like, oh, well, that's just like on planet, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> uh, which again, gives it credence. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but yeah, that is, uh, that is what I, uh, what I did with that. And, yeah, some things are yours to decide entirely. Some things are not. And so that was that was a case of me adapting what I needed to do to what was on the screen. I think there are actually some of those 
pillar-like ice structures on some of Jupiter's icy moons like Europa. And scientists are trying to figure out exactly how did they form there because there's not really much you know, wind or yeah. thick atmosphere there. But yeah, it's, it's really cool. That was a nice parallel for me to notice. <laughs> okay, I got a little confused here, so let me set things straight. I went back and flipped through John's book and rewatched that scene in Star Trek Discovery second season and realized that what John is referring to here are ventifacts. These are wind-carved structures that one can find in desert environments on Earth. Now, during our conversation, though, I was thinking of something different, something called penitentes, which are jagged ice structures that form from differential sublimation. Now, sublimation is the process of water going straight from solid to gas, and equal sublimation would lead to an ice mass uniformly shrinking. But differential sublimation would lead to faster mass loss in certain regions, and when the cavities in the ice start to enhance ice loss rates, while high points don't sublimate as quickly, this can lead to towering spear-like protrusions of ice. Penitentes form here on Earth at high altitudes, like in the Cascades or the Andes Mountains. They're a pretty cool phenomenon, and they were stuck in my mind because I had seen a recent debate at a planetary science conference about whether penitentes form on Jupiter's icy moon Europa, a place where scientists want to send a robotic lander one day to search for signs of extraterrestrial life. One paper from 2018 claims that Europa's conditions are prime for building bladed terrain with penitentes as large as 15 meters in height. But experimental work published in 2020 suggests that Europa's surface is instead covered in a friendlier, rounded, bubble-like icy terrain. This is fascinating because knowing whether penitentes cover Europa's surface is critical to designing a mission that's gonna land there. Anyway, sorry for that small diversion. I just thought I'd clear up what we were talking about. The ice structures in John's story and in season two of Star Trek Discovery were definitely wind-carved ventifacts made of ice. And silly me thought that they could have been penitentes. Let's switch gears now to your other Star Trek Discovery novel, Die Standing. Um, this one chronicles mm -hmm. Emperor Georgiou's acclamation to the Prime Universe and her induction mm -hmm. into Section 31. I think, if I'm being completely honest, this was my favorite Star Trek Discovery novel so far. <laughs> I thought you wrote Georgiou's characters so well. We also got to see Emini Dax, one of Jadzia and Ezri's former lives, and also Finnegan, who was like just appeared in one Star Trek TOS episode um, and was like a bully. It wasn't even really him. Right, it was like it an android really of him. <laughs> but I thought that was yeah, so was... fun. Yeah, um, and so, you know, one, one thing that I keep thinking about as I watch Discovery and as I read your novel was how conflicted I am about Emperor Giorgio. Because first of all, I just love watching her character. I love Michelle Yeoh and her work and I love Giorgio's interaction with the Discovery crew. And I love that she's a badass Asian woman, you know, uh, on the TV screen and in your book. Um, 
But then I remember like, wait a minute, this person is like not a good person. She is the supreme leader or was the supreme leader of like a fascist xenophobic empire. So it's like very confusing for me. And I was wondering, as the author of a book that was told mainly from her point of view, do you have any insights into the George O character? Um, How do do you navigate this like evilness versus coolness factor of her? The, the reason I was willing to come to a Discovery story in the first place was because of the uh, the Mirror Universe episodes of the first season, mm-hmm. uh, because I felt that that was really a well-done arc, and that was really where it took off. And, uh, you know, I had never done anything with the Mirror Universe before, and I, I found really interesting, you know, what uh, what would be the benefit to having somebody like her being in section 31 why would they want this would anybody else with a brain want her there uh and so i decided to turn that up and once again just like going into the engineering specs i went into the uh, the rules of the federation and found out okay they have their own security agency completely unrelated from section 31 and so they would want to have their you know keep tabs on her they would want to you know prevent her from getting loose they call her a biological weapon Um, And the purpose of the novel was to basically answer the very basic question for me of why does she not just immediately revert to form and try to take this galaxy over to this universe over? What stops her? Why would she play nice with Section 31 or play at all with Section 31? Why would she bother if she's just been all everything? You know, she was she was the ruler of the known universe. And it dawned on me, okay, she has lost more than anybody in the history of history has lost. Mm -hmm. She's lost everything. This is not Napoleon being exiled to Elba. This is, this is beyond that. And, you know, what do you do? What next? And the first act is all about her trying to get her freedom to be able to do what she wants to do. Then we move into why it's a benefit to have her around well, the, the Section 31 would see, oh, well, she probably knows stuff about our universe that we don't because, uh, you know, she's had a glimpse of the future from the records that came back on the Defiant. Right. Uh, but also, uh, you know, she's probably invaded areas that we have not gone to yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so completely unrelated to her skills as, as an agent, as a tactician, as all of those things. Uh, you know, I, I thought that those were nice, but not worth putting her in uniform for. What she has that's unique is she has seen the world that we live in in ways that we haven't and has been places we haven't. And some things are different between her universe and ours, but maybe not all of them. However, that works both ways, because, again, this novel sends her after a particular, she considers it a weapon, that she believes could bring her to power here, something that she had a chance at in her universe. Uh, And so, you know, we send her on an odyssey. And I say we, because obviously it's everybody at, 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 you know, Simon & Schuster that works on these books, uh, but also Kirsten uh, Beyer, who is uh, in the writer's room at Discovery. You know, she and I, uh, you know, have a conversation before each book about, you know, what, what the characters should be going through and what we want to see happen and not happen. Uh, and, and so that's, that's what we do. And over the course of this odyssey, you know, I got to do something uh, which I had wanted to do, which is I created three different races 
which were very, very alien from each other and, and from us. Uh, and the three species that we meet in Die Standing are just extremely alien. And uh, there's a character, uh, Quintilian, who has made a living, had made a career, made a fortune, being the only person who knows how to actually handle dealing with these three species. Mm-hmm. Uh, and into this, we throw her. And, 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 and that's, uh, that's, that's where the story comes from. Uh, and it was, it was a dark book to write because everything she does, you know, when something nice happens to her from somebody else or somebody does something nice, she has to view it with suspicion. You know, she has to respond as a Terran would. And when she decides to, to make her life in this uh, dimension, you know, it had to be believable. It had to be because I had set up the circumstances surrounding her such that she would reasonably judge that working with Section 31 was a better deal than she could make for herself. Mm. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, we talk about psychology. Yeah, I, I came up with a mirror universe equivalent of the cooler Ross stages of loss uh, or, or grief uh-huh. for her to be going through. Yeah. And that's, in fact, how the book is structured. In the Terran universe, they don't go through uh, you know, a denial uh, a, a, on their way to acceptance they go from defiance on their way to to vengeance. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned the three alien species that we encounter in this novel. And I think that that just hits on one of the great things about Star Trek novels is that you're not limited by the budget or the production constraints of a TV show. You can really let your imagination fly to all sorts of different kinds of life forms out there. And I think that this book just has some really interesting aliens in it. And I was wondering if you could say a few words on how you developed the biology and the culture of those different aliens. (laughs) Now here I'm blanking on the names. (laughs) Uh, So they're the Kazmarans, the Dromax, the the Oslings, yes. Uh, okay, yeah, the, the, the Casmarans, the Dromax, and the Oslings. So, so again, I want to create this triangular trade here. So we have the, the Oslings who are agricultural. Uh, we have the, the Kasmarans who are technological. And then we have the Dromax who are just violently you know, warlike. Uh, but they're going to be doing all of our mining and, and creating uh, raw materials. So, so we have this going back and forth. Uh, the Kasmarans, I decided that they were going to be uh, basically, it goes a uh, starfish that had multi-levels of limbs so that they would be oriented along a, a single spine. And then I decided that their entire society would be basically, all of their engineering would be built around that, the notion of, of fives and sixes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the fives and sixes even are suggested by how they have terraformed, or not terraformed, but transformed uh, their planet because they have basically dug out a soccer ball. Uh, if, if you're approaching from orbit, you see uh, you know, the, the territories are all uh, you know, separated by great walls of land into pentagons and uh, hexagons. So, so yeah, I mean, we have a, we have a, a buckyball here. <laughs> right. uh, yeah. So, so, uh, and they would, they would propel themselves in multiple ways because they could flip over like a hydra and affix themselves by walking, but then they could also, you know, roll on their sides and go rolling. Mm-hmm. And so, 
Uh, I thought that was a that was an attractive and interesting thing. Uh, the Dromax, again, that's our constant warlike species. I wanted them to be basically living tanks. I wanted them to be trundling forward always. I gave them jellyfish-like guts so that they were they're always sort of you know sliming their way here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then actually in the middle of writing the book, I said, okay, I need to get into how they reproduce. And they reproduce in two ways. The old-fashioned way is just a simple uh, a fission that happens, which is kind of gross when we see it. <laughs> but then also uh, I was able to, and this was, this was a whole plot element that was not in the original plot, but uh, there is a, uh, a, a very Star Trek-y thing where there's a time portal uh, that they've got where you know we had established again in Discovery that there are time crystals in Star Trek for some reason, these crystals manipulate time, and I figured, okay, well, let's have uh, let's have a geological formation of these things, but let's have it have been damaged in some way, shape, or form, so that you know when you go through it, you uh, you end up getting a double of yourself five seconds later, and that that would be a that would be a mechanism for how this warlike species can continue to constantly you know, reinforce itself. And of course, that would also be a key to controlling them. Finally, we have the Oslings and the Oslings are, are very much more, you know, quiet, uh, ethereal uh, characters. You know, I, I figured they would just, they would, they would be sort of spindly, but would have colossal sort of gas-filled bubbles for their brains where you could see electrical activity in there and where they could actually you know, make any image they wanted to up there, whether it's really there or, or whether it's telepathically visible. And again, you know, once we get into biology, Star Trek kind of lets you do what you want. Uh-huh. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, you don't really have to figure out, well, how would this work? But we come into this embracing the notion that there are gaseous beings that may have intelligence. Uh, we come into this, you know, with all these different choices uh, that Star Trek has given us. And all I need to do, uh, if I'm justifying something as being, I just have to show my work. I just have to cite it. I have to say, oh, well, this is like that species of that episode. Mm-hmm. And usually I will also tell the reader that. In case the reader is saying, oh, well, this, you can't do that. Yeah, yeah. No, I love that. Um, I mean, like I said, really letting your imagination fly and bringing us species that aren't just another humanoid with a different forehead is yeah. a great addition to the Star Trek universe. Well, uh, I, I do those too, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, but I really think it, it, it's extra important to bring in these other types of aliens because, um, you know, I, I really think that on a different world and a completely different planet with a different geochemistry, a different history over billions of years, evolution yeah. will lead to aliens like the Dromax or the Oslings or the Cosmarans or something even wilder. Uh, and so yeah, it's great I to agree. have that space, yeah, in Star Trek well, in their novels. It's also in service to story. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I could have made various human-like species in various other stories, you know, more alien for years, but it would mess the story up. Uh, mm-hmm. or, or it would make the story about that. If the important thing about species X is what they just did to this you know, thing over here. And we're not going to spend, you know, pages and pages and pages talking about who they are, why they are the way they are and all of that. 
uh, you know, then you fall back on the bumpy heads. Sure. Uh, then you fall back on that. Um, but, you know, here was a case where I had the room, I had the space, and the point was that they were so alien, nobody had dealt with them before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I love that, you know, even the universal translator had a little bit of a hard time, or, or there was like one species where they translated through visual signals and uh, like yeah. they had a little box or something. Yeah, it was. Yeah, they had yeah. a box. Yeah. And, a box. and yeah. again, they had to fine tune it because, uh, you know, whatever, uh, whatever uh, was being spoken, it would select correct vocabulary for them. And so you could change the setting from polite to antagonistic, uh, <laughs> which turned out to be the actual tenor that they were trying to talk in most of the time. Uh, but yeah, again, uh, a really fun book. It was a, it was a dark book. It was not the easiest book to write, but uh, I'm really happy with how it came out. Mm -hmm. Me too. As we get towards the end of our time here together, I was wondering if there's anything particularly sciencey that I missed in these two books that you'd like to mention? <laughs> I think we've just about hit it. Okay, uh, cool. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, uh, yeah, I do think about this stuff. You know, when I, when we get into questions of they're mining this or doing that, I ask, why are they mining this? Mm -hmm. Why can't they replicate this? Why can't they do this? And of course, right now here, you know, these two novels are set in the in the distant past of the next generation. They're set before we've got replicators. But I'm I'm always saying, why is it worth it for them to be a, to be doing this sort of thing here and now? Why would they not just do these things because there's these questions are just right there in the beginning why are they not beaming torpedoes into other people's ships uh -huh. you know you there's got to be a reason and so you need to have you know figured out what that is and so yeah i mean in the in the most recent book i i, I wrote and this comes out in august this is uh star trek uh picard rogue elements i can't really say much about it other than that it is uh it tells about the early earlier life of Captain Rios, mm -hmm. uh, Cristobal Rios from uh, from the La Serena. Um, well, this is set 2390s. So, you know, we're way after anything uh, in the next generation. So at that point, I've got all the technology to play with, uh, with the exception of what we've now seen in Discovery Season 3. At this point, I no longer have, they don't have replicators for an excuse. So right. I, I am having to always say, all right, what is the value of, you know, having, well, he flies a freighter. What's the value of having a freighter? What's the value of carrying anything anywhere if you have replicators? Does everybody not have replicators? Are there things that replicators can't replicate? Are there things that people don't value if they are replicated? This gets into questions beyond science. This gets into questions of, of culture and commerce and various other things. And so I have to say that as a palate cleanser, well, it's a really big palate cleanser because it's the longest novel I've ever written, both after Die Standing and also uh, with the pandemic happening, I had said both to my editor, uh, Margaret Clark, and to, uh, and to Kirsten that I wanted to write a fun book. I wanted to write a, a book that would be a great summer read uh, for people uh, who have earned it. Because if I'm going to be locked in anyway and locked in with a novel and it ended up being you know, three, four months to write, I really am going to want to have fun. And mm -hmm. this book is a blast. Oh. So that, that, that it comes out in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook 
third week of August, I believe. I'm hoping it will come out at Star Trek Las Vegas, but that is dependent on many things that have nothing to do with me. Uh, that, <laughs> that is that is that is when the uh, the event is still scheduled at the moment. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. Mm-hmm. Well, I can't wait to read it. And I'm so glad you made it fun. I'm so glad that you as an author really dig deep into the layers of Star Trek and really ask those why questions and try to bring that into your novels. Um, if people want to keep up with you and your projects on the web, where can they find you? Uh, on Facebook, John Jackson Miller. I just got Instagram, although I'm not sure why. Uh, John Jackson Miller as well. Well, I, I'm a writer. I don't take pictures. So uh, uh, Twitter, JJM Faraway. And then on, uh, on uh, you know, if they're looking for my behind the scenes notes on all my books, uh, still trying to get to the notes for Enterprise War and Die Standing. Haven't had a free day yet for that. Uh, those are all on farawaypress.com. Uh, and then the uh, the comics history site I mentioned, that's Comicron, C-O-M-I-C-H-R-O-N.com. It also has its own Twitter, Comicron, uh, and a Patreon under that name. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, last question. Um, something sure. that I've been asking all of my guests this year in 2021. Um, what is something that brings you hope? Because, you know, we're, a lot of people are struggling right now. It's the middle of the pandemic. Um, and this thing that gives you hope can be related to Star Trek or can be just something completely different. Um, but what is something that gives you hope, John? Oh, gosh. Um <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think humans are resilient. I think that uh, anybody who uh, studies history has seen us go through a lot of different things uh, as a world, as a species. What I do, you know, I, I feel like I'm here to entertain. I feel like I'm here to make life easier on folks. I will try to inspire people with some uh, with some ideas every now and again, and 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 throw some things at people. But but really, I feel like you know, people uh, come to science fiction, they come to science fantasy, they come to space opera in part for escape and also in part because it's a safer place to delve into some of the issues that divide people, delve into some of the issues that would otherwise be contentious. If I took a particular you know topic, which has a political aspect to it, I could probably start an argument in five seconds on the internet. Mm-hmm. But I can also do it with the Empire and the Rebellion or the, the Federation and the Klingons. Uh, and I can put it at a remove. And we can begin thinking about some of these things without necessarily uh, you know, going to war over them. So uh, I, I think, you know, one of the things that gives me hope is that sales of books are doing fine. Uh, and, <laughs> And, you know, maybe not in person sales uh, the way the way that it was. But I, I mean, yeah, the comic book industry, again, which I which I track for for Comicron, we had three weeks with no new comics for the first time since 1935. And the industry is back and booming like it never you know happened. And obviously it did. And there's stores that suffered and people that suffered and readers that suffered and, and all of this. But, um, you know, where did people turn to? In these times of trouble, they turn to, they turn to ideas. They turn to books. They turn to entertainments. They turn to things that you know would give them hope that there is you know something coming up that's better. So yeah, I think Star Trek is a hopeful thing. I think comics in general. I think science fiction in general is a hopeful thing. You can kind of tell what's going on in the world by the fiction that comes from that time, by the movies that come from that time. Uh, Star Wars is so important because. 
the the movies of the 1970s before that the science fiction ones were extremely bleak and depressing we have logan's run where everybody dies at 30 we have soylent green the less said about the better we have silent running where all the you know forests are gone uh we have planet of the apes before that where you know you know what's happened there and then we get to you know sort of that that happier outlook star wars really sort of kicks off the 80s because it's more upbeat um I don't think that a lot of fiction that's going to come out of this last couple of years is going to be downbeat. I think it's going to go the other direction. I think it's going to be a response, just like we had that snapback sort of response back then. Uh, you know, I, I think that we're going to see that here and now. I have to say that instead of doing the Rios book, I could have done a book of my own that was going to have, it wasn't going to be dystopian, but it was going to have big disastrous elements in it. Mm. And I just didn't feel it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, let, you know, not right now, not right, right now. And so uh, my hope is that the, you know, certainly, uh, you know, the world will get better. And also uh, I think we're going to have some happier fiction here coming for the next while. I am guessing that strange new worlds, the new show based on uh, the, the, the Pike enterprise, I'm guessing that's going to be a very positive feeling thing. Absolutely. And uh, thank you for contributing your own bit of positive feeling to the Trek universe through your novels. Uh, it's always a pleasure to read them. And thank you, especially for joining me today on Strange New Worlds. Absolutely. That was part two of my interview with Star Trek author John Jackson Miller. It was so fascinating to hear John's thoughts on blending real science with Star Trek pseudoscience to develop his awesome stories and scenes in his books. Particularly interesting to me was the parallel between scientific writing and writing Star Trek fiction. You know, just as scientists must cite previous scientific works and discoveries to add legitimacy to the arguments that they present in their papers, John lends credence to the descriptions of the worlds and aliens that he imagines by citing previous examples of similar phenomena seen in other Star Trek episodes. That's so cool that it's the same kind of idea. If I were to have one scientific reservation from everything that we spoke about today, it's that on any world where nitrogen takes solid form, oxygen would condense out as well. So Spock really shouldn't have been able to breathe outside of his mech suit for any amount of time whatsoever. But that's an easy fix. In my headcanon, he's just wearing some kind of breathing apparatus underneath his mask that supplies him with enough gaseous O2 to keep him alive, as well as an extra, extra, extra warm parka. I just wanted to thank John Jackson Miller one more time for being our fantastic first novelist on Strange New Worlds. You should definitely go and check out his books if you haven't yet. And remember, his work extends into the multiverse of fandoms. So even though I've ravenously consumed all of his Trek stuff to date, I know I still have a lot of reading to look forward to in a galaxy far, far away. Coming soon to Strange New Worlds, a chat with NASA Chief Scientist Jim Green and Columbia University astronomer Tiffany Jansen, both of whom are, of course, Trekkies, 
and experts in factors that can increase or decrease a planet's habitability. You don't want to miss it. Until then, see you out there. No, the, these were a lot of questions I don't normally get to answer. So cool. that's that's always good. That's uh, good to hear. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's uh, I, I've got about five frequently asked questions that are in every single interview, and we didn't hit mm-hmm. any of them. So that's oh, good. <laughs> that, 